Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we're excited to welcome to the podcast two people today. First, we have Adom Gatachu, uh, who is a Neubauer Family Assistant Professor of Political Science and the College at the University of Chicago. And also we have Jennifer Pitts, who's Professor of Political Science and the Committee on Social Thought, also at the University of Chicago. And they are the editors of a fantastic new book. I was just telling them off air, but the th- I was just so impressed with the introductory essay and the, the tracking down of footnotes and, and this really excellent volume titled W.E.B. Du Bois, International Thought, released by Cambridge. So uh, thank you, Adome and Jennifer, for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So why don't we just start with like the first question? What what made you want to to publish this volume? And maybe you could situate Du Bois's thought. I, I know, uh, Adom, you have a, 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 an intellectual project that you've been doing for, for years. Um, everyone check out her book, World Making After Empire, which tries to reframe how we think about international thought. So, so maybe you both could talk about how Du Bois fits into that larger project and what we, we could learn from this volume as a whole, basically why you did it. Yeah, I'm happy uh, to start. Um, So when I was writing my first book, um, you know, Du Bois figured to some extent in that book. He was an intellectual progenitor for the figures who were really at the center of that of that text, like Kwame Nkrumah and others. And he was a progenitor in the sense that um, some of his early thinking around um, what he would call the global color line and his kind of advocacy around pan-Africanism would be central to creating the networks, um, intellectual, political, and otherwise, that helped to foster the forms of anti-colonial internationalism that I was interested in. Um, So, you know, as I said, he features in that book, but not centrally. And I wanted to do this work with Jennifer on this volume in part to think about, well, what it would look like to follow Du Bois's thinking on international politics um, in a more concerted manner. Um, obviously, Du Bois is an incredibly pro- prolific scholar, um, we were just ta- saying that the Oxford series has 22 books um, that he wrote, and there's countless, countless um, um, essays and edited ed- volumes of his writings, too. But what it would look like to kind of follow this theme of the international, of empire, of glo- a global color line throughout um, his career. And I, I guess I would just add from, um, I sort of came at Du Bois chronologically from the other side rather than as a progenitor of, of anti-colonial thinkers. I, I had been working on a book about the um, the kind of history of the entanglement of, of European imperial expansion and international law that wound up basically at the World War One moment. Um, and I was interested in a strand of thought that the international order is composed of equal and independent nation states. And it's a kind of relentless focus on the state at the expense of empire, even though those who worked in this mode were perfectly aware that, you know, that the states they were talking about were, were also empires. But 
Du Bois, particularly the essays that he wrote during World War One, African Roots of War and the Culture of White Folk in particular, just have a radically different picture of the international order. James Tully uses a, a has the useful idea of languages of disclosure and says, you know, the, we live in an imperial world order, but our languages of disclosure are um, not adept at at um, portraying that or you know actively conceal that. Um, and and I think both of us saw uh, Du Bois is offering a set of languages of disclosure that that speak to the the imperial world order um, of his day and now. So uh, you both are in a political science department, and I did a you know a, a grad field in um, IR theory, right? And Du Bois, and frankly, I don't, I can't remember even reading one black thinker in my sort of grad field. Um, so how do you see this project as relating to IR as a subdiscipline? Um, I know that's not your n- neither of your homes, but I'm curious of being in a political science department. What do you see? You know, you, you, in IR, you start with Thucydides and you go to Hans Morgenthau, and there's not that much in between. Maybe Machiavelli, if you're lucky. So, how does sort of introducing Du Bois into this canon, as it were, reshape how we might think about IR theory um, as a whole? So I think you know I think the the field of IR over the last say 20 years has um really taken up a much longer history of kind of black critical thinking about the international order but as a discipline has been engaging much more directly with the foundational role of race in the international order um it's it's you know disciplines are slow to move but it, it, as as you say as in terms of kind of canon formation uh, du Bois, I think, is coming to be recognized in scholarship as tremendously important as an international thinker. But it, but um, part of the the impetus behind the volume it's a, it's in a series of um, that's des- you know intended as teaching texts. Um, and so the idea was to get together in one sort of easy to refer to place a series of essays that would give a sense of Du Bois's as a of Du Bois's international thinking and of Du Bois really as a um, as a key international theorist of the 20th century. Um, so the hope is to, is, you know, to sort of contribute to that um, project of canonization, let's say, um, and also to, to provide a lot of material for kind of ongoing reflection on the part of um, not just IR, but political science more generally and, and international political thinking more generally. Yeah, I mean, I just echo that. I think um, the book comes at a moment where there's kind of, I think, increasing reception in IR to um, both kind of black thinkers. But, you know, I think it would be important to mention the project on women's international thought, the two volumes that Patricia Owens and others have been involved in, which just came out last year or maybe the year before. Um, so I think it joins a kind of wider set of conversations that are trying to expand the boundaries of what counts as international thought, who counts as a thinker or theorist of the international. Um, and in some ways, yeah, I think this is a particularly opportune moment for the book to come out in part because I think there is that growing recept- receptivity um, to these questions. 
Uh, and listeners, as, as you probably already know, uh, we have an episode with Katarina Rietzler on that project. So, so check that out. It, it's a really interesting work. So why don't we get into Du Bois himself? And, and maybe you could start with who was he? Uh, where was he born? How did he encounter the international as a young man? And how did the problematics that would shape his life come to be? How were they encountered by him? You know, um, yes, Du Bois was born in 1868 in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Um, uh, his own family had roots in part uh, that, you know, on, on one side that traced through Haiti, but he grew up just in the kind of in the context of the Reconstruction, right? But of course, away from the actual scene or site of Reconstruction in the South. Uh, he attended Fisk University. Um, and, you know, I think... Um, He's, he seems to have had interests in or a, an interest in the world even in those days. Uh, so he wrote essays, a speech on Bismarck at a very young age. Um, he would go on to study at in Germany and he become the first African-American to receive a PhD from Harvard. Um, his, his dissertation was on the suppression of the African slave trade. And it's a history of how the United States comes to abolish the slave trade in 1807. But I think there too, you already see a kind of interest in the ways that U.S. fault policy on that question is um, shaped by um um, by international dynamics. So the Haitian Revolution and the consequences of the Haitian Re Revolution play an important role in how he explains the decision uh, to abolish the trade in 1807. But, you know, our volume begins in 1900 and it, it tracks his writings from 1900 uh, to 1956. And 1900 is a really important moment, or, or basically that turn of the 19th century, uh, the turn of the 20th century is a really important moment uh, for, for Du Bois, uh, because it, it is this conjuncture of, of kind of the, what, what many would call the new imperialism, the scam scramble for Africa, and the rise of Jim Crow, or the failure of Reconstruction um, in the United States. And, um, and maybe I'll let Jennifer pick up the story <laughs> from there. Okay, <laughs> right. So, yeah, I mean, just to take it from 1900, he's involved, you know, there's the International Paris Exposition, and he's involved in contributing to the American Exposition there. It's the, it's the first, the, the year of the first Pan-African Conference. Um, he then attends uh, the Universal Racist Conference in London in 1911. So he's... It, it, and, and it's around 1899, 1900 that he starts saying the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. And by that, he, he although it, it maybe became famous to most readers um, through his citation of it in Souls of Black Folk in 1903, he always intended it in a, in a global sense. Um, and he made that clear again and again when he, when he used the term or the, you know, reiterated the phrase. In 1915, um, and or sort of in, on the occasion of, of the First World War, he ha wrote a number of pieces of analysis of the World War as the product of imperial rivalry and imperial conflict, um, and kind of started at that point a line of argument that he carried on through the interwar period and through World War II, which was that an, an, unless and until Europe managed to overcome its... Uh, insistence on colonial domination, it would never, there would never be peace in, in Europe that, that, um, the, that the, um, the kind of integration of 
racial and colonial domination in the European political project just meant that it was going to be permanently crisis prone. Um, he uh, was interested in socialism and cooperative economics for a very long time. He got more interested in more specifically Marxian language in the 20s and 30s or Marxian categories of analysis. We can yeah, let's, let's get to that in a second. But yeah, just let's okay. hold on this for a second because because I'm a historian. I like tracing, you know, how things shift over time. So in this first period, which you title in the uh, book, Encountering the New Imperialism, uh, could you maybe describe what is what is the color line in, in Du Bois's thought at this very early stage? And you have a very interesting point where people – you argue, um, read back a pan-Africanism into this early period that you think is, it, it might be there, but different how they imagine. So can we talk about sort of what is the color line and, and what is Du Bois's approach toward empire in this World War One pre-World War One period? And then I'd love to talk um, about your identification of this democratic despotism theme as, as key to his work. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing to think about in terms of the 1900 Pan-African Congress uh, conference, rather, uh, uh, which is called um, by Henry Sylvester Williams, a Trinidadian barrister in London, is um, is that its its primary context is the Boer War, the wars in South Africa, and what the conference is primarily trying to do is direct the British Empire to kind of protect Black South Africans, right, um, to ensure the equal rights of Black British subjects. Um, and you can see in the language of that um, of that text to the nation of the world that we include um, as part of the volume, the ways in which, for instance, um, uh, du Bois and, and the kind of his collaborators at the conference uh, um, appear to hold to a kind of civilizational story, right? Um, believe in the kind of improving character of empire. I think there's ways that they complicate that narrative, that they want to build a richer and more egalitarian story of civilization, but um, or at least a more inclusive story of civilization, if not egalitarian. Um, but it's one that they that they kind of hold to, um, and so there's this. I guess an idea of a kind of moral or an enlightened empire, that's still an ideal that's important. Um, There's also in this period, another essay, we include the present outlook of the darker races. Um, And there Du Bois describes, he's giving a kind of broad survey of imperial and international um, history or a kind of slice of the world at 1900. And one of the things he's commenting on is what happens after the Spanish-American War. How do we think about the relationship of African-Americans to, you know, new colonial subjects in the Philippines in Puerto Rico? And there, too, he imagines a process of incorporation where imperial subjects will become part of the empire, that African-Americans will play a kind of vanguard role vis-a-vis this newly incorporated colonial subject. So there's, I think I would say, you know, the, the color line here, you know, there is a kind of sense that, um, racial hierarchy and uh, forms of racial exclusion, political, economic, and otherwise, are becoming more more entrenched. But there is the thought that these polities, imperial polities, may still be able to correct for this, um, right? You know, that there would be ways of generating more egalitarian 
forms of political and social relation within the empires as as they're kind of currently configured. Um, so there isn't an, uh, so what we want, what we want to say is that in 1900, he's not at the place he would be say by the 1930s or forties where he has a clear anti-imperialism, right? That, that to be anti-racist means to be also anti, anti-imperial. And I think this tracks a whole set of other figures, you know, who wrote in this, in this kind of period. One thing I would just add to that, and then maybe I can take up the democratic despotism question, is I think that um, what Adam was describing about his, you know, attempt to find uh, progressive potential, let's say, in something like um, American imperial expansion is a theme that recurs throughout his work, even when he becomes more, you know, outright anti-imperial. He looks to powerful states or uh phenomena like American capitalism that you might think are not particularly promising vehicles for emancipation. Um, and, you know, often with a, a pretty disillusioned attitude toward them, not, not you know, idealizing them as, as uh, vehicles for emancipation, but, but with a kind of pragmatic attitude. So he looks to the League of Nations mandate system, and rather than just rejecting it outright, he says it should be reformed so that there, you know, it involves um, black representation Similarly, with the um, uh, the United Nations, um, the uh, appeal to the United Nations um, that he edits in um, 1947, again, not with tremendous. He's he's already made clear that he thinks the founding of the UN on the basis of of you know powerful imperial states is a tremendous um, lost opportunity and mistake, but still uses the UN as a um, you know, uses the resources that are on offer in such institutions. So that's the thing throughout. Yeah. So this is one of the things, I mean, this might be because I'm obsessed right now because I'm doing a uh, edited volume where you do have to, you know, get living authors to contribute on Cold War liberalism. And there does seem to be a, a sort of capital L liberal element to the early Du Bois's thought and sort of this tutelary focus of what empire is going to be able to do abroad. Is, is that, reading in a liberalism that isn't there or what is his relation to, to liberalism at this early moment in his thinking? That's a, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think Charles Mills wrote an essay in which he identified Du Bois as a, as a black radical liberal and, and wanted to insist that there is a space within, a, um, you know, a broadly conceived liberal tradition for a thinker like Du Bois. And I think he, he, he didn't intend that merely um, to refer to an early, Du Bois, who was, you know, a, a accommodationist toward toward empire, but um, but also thinking more broadly about some of liberalism's commitments to moral equality, and so that's one way to read Du Bois um, kind of expansively as a, as a liberal alongside his his socialist commitments. But I think it's it's certainly true that that, that there's a developmentalism in the early writings, which Adam has already described, which certainly. I think falls away by the the First World War essays when when his sense of disgust and despair over European civilization is so profound that that developmentalism no longer seems plausible. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's true, and I think um, you know, I guess one um, you know we we didn't we don't really frame the book in these terms, but I think of course another way to think about this kind of book is in the context of um, African-American thought, black political thought. And 
you know, I think an earlier kind of way of thinking about African-American political thought would have said, okay, there are various kinds of ideological camps and we might have a radical liberal one, a kind of um, a Marxist one, a nationalist one, etc. And I think one thing you you get when you do this sort of um, you walk through Du Bois, you know, from from for for half a century is there are, of course, ways in which in certain moments he seems to resonate much more closely with a certain tradition. In the 30s, he's, he appears more like a Marxist than than and then in this per- early period, he's closer to kind of um, a, a liberal politics. But I think one of the things, you know, we find also when we do in this in this kind of study is how actually Du Bois kind of escapes all of those sorts of binaries. So on the one hand, yes, he's at his most kind of developmental in this early period, but he writes a, an essay in 1904, which is not in the volume called The Development of a People, where he kind of begins to unpack what development means, right? Um, he's kind of critical of the idea that, say, development will mean um, that country A is, is going to, country A in Africa is going to look like Europe in a hundred years, right? He, he rejects a sort of, a kind of reductive economic conception of developmentalism. So all, he does all of that, even as he does continue to imagine that development of some kind. And I would say his kind of ideas of, about moral or ethical development probably persists, you know, in different ways, if not in his international writings throughout his life. So that's one, you know, but the same is true, say, of his Marxism. So generally, I think the Marxism is dated to the 1930s, of course, most importantly with Black Reconstruction, but he also taught a class on Marxism and the Negro around the 30s um, when he was preparing to write Black Reconstruction. And this is the first systematic reading of Marx he does, um, is, is, is at least how his biographer, David Levering Lewis, puts it. But, you know, if you read an essay like African Roots of War, it's from 1915, and it, it, you know, it seems to anticipate in various ways the kind of the sort of story about the imperial roots of World War One that we would associate with a thinker like Lenin, um, whose book comes out a couple of years, two years after that. So I think the, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think like what we try to do in the in the introduction is a model a way of reading. Du Bois that tries to think about what's the animating set of questions that's driving him at each turn, and then how does he respond to those? And it turns out that the responses are kind of actually perhaps stitching together, you know, par- different parts of different ideological positions. Yeah, he's like one of the great thinkers that you could do a Du Bois and developmentalism book. You know, like there, there, there's like these themes you could trace over fifty years. Like he, he's he, and and just the sheer amount that he wrote, you're going to be able to get at so many issues. Um, Derek, I know you had a question. Yeah, it kind of follows on uh, Adam. You you brought up um, the present outlook for the dark races of mankind. I, one of the things that really stuck out to me as I was reading the book is the places where there was real contemporary relevance to some of the some of his writing not and not just like in a post-cold war sense or whatever but like immediate contemporary relevance and i'm curious uh if you could talk a little bit about russia's position with respect to the color line because he kind of hints in that essay uh at at a sort of straddling that russia sort of straddles the color line in a sense and and 
it does, I mean, I think in European history, occupy this kind of funny space where sometimes Russia is in the club, sometimes Russia is excluded from the club. We're definitely in an exclusion period right now. Um, and so I'm sort of curious, even, even in Du Bois' own writing, when it comes to, let's say, his, his views on the Russo-Japanese war, it's, you know, Russia is definitely on the, the, let's say, white side of the color line. But, uh, I wonder if, you know, just if there's a more nuanced and maybe his affinity for, uh, the Soviet Union plays into this as well. But if you guys could talk a little bit about, about that. Yeah. Great question. Um, I, you know, I think I've not really thought, yeah, it'd be interesting to track Du Bois on Russia throughout the period as That's well. That's another book, Du Bois on Russia. <laughs> you know, we're coming up with dissertations. Well, left and right. you know, for, for people who are really excited, there's um, a uh, unpublished uh, manuscript in the Du Bois archives and the Du Bois archives are publicly uh, available online through UMass Amherst. So anybody can, can search them, but the manuscript is called Russia and America. I can't remember. It's written in the 50s. I can't remember the specific period. And he submits it and it's rejected. And the the book Russia and America is trying to tell the story of Russia and America as parallel stories. So I was thinking about um, the emancipation of serfs, the abolition of slavery, and this kind of uh, as, as parallel kinds of developments and thinking about these two spaces as you know, having the possibilities for realizing a vision of political and economic democracy that he's interested in, right? Um, I mean, the, you know, and part of why he's interested in writing that book in that in that particular moment is as a kind of anti-Cold War kind of book, right? To show the ways in which these two spaces, which are obviously in this kind of existential conflict with each other, share what he t- thinks to be a set of important experiences and and might have th- might have things to offer the world different different lessons different experiences but that together taking the best of both worlds we might have a kind of different vision of the post-war future um now i think you know this is something we talk about in the in the in the introduction, and I think comes out in some of the essays. There is, of course, a kind of romantic. By the time we get to the Soviet Union, a romanticization of the Soviet Union at certain moments, um, um, one that's you know un- inattentive to the ways that the Soviet Union is an empire, right? Uh, and you know, I think this connects to what Jennifer was saying earlier about this effort to find, you know, countervailing forces um, that might uh, serve as bulwarks against, you know, um, European slash American empire, but also offer really important models. Um, so, you know, when right after World War One is over, Du Bois helps to put together the first Pan-African Congress in 1919. He makes various overtures to Wilson and the League of Nations. When all of those fails fail, he comes back home and writes an editorial to in the crisis where he says, you know, the one real lesson of World War One is the lesson that those who work can govern. And we got that lesson from the Bolsheviks. So I do think there's this uh, kind of, I guess, at the core of of um, Du Bois's attachment to the Soviet Union, at least beginning in World War One, is is the sense that this is at least an experiment in the kind of in in political and economic democracy. You know, um, 
how accurate a read, you know, that was of the Soviet experience, you know, you know, I think there's lots of room for debate and discussion, but that, that it is an experiment in a kind of fuller meaning of what democracy might be is a central kind of, drives him centrally. So I think this might be a natural place to return to the question we were going to talk about a while ago, which is this notion of democratic despotism. And it might make sense um, to talk about what is democratic despotism? How does it arise? Why is it meaningful? And then particularly, I, I love the move you guys make in your introduction to relate it directly to is transformation, what the color line means on the global level. So could we maybe talk a little bit about both of those concepts and how they relate to each other? Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you brought it up because I think it does uh, help us to think about about the contours of the of the global color line. So he has a kind of um, you know long durée history of political development in in Europe, specifically saying there was um, you know revolution and democratization over the course of the 19th century, and gradually certain forms of exploitation of the white working class became less and less um, acceptable, and that was. Um, accompanied by and made possible by um, increasingly exacerbated um, exploitation of of racialized um, people in uh, colonial for, I mean, through the slave trade and slavery and 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 in the the expansion of the European colonial empires and especially um, in the scramble for Africa as, as Adam was saying in the kind of later part of the nineteenth century so that democratization in Europe was made economically possible. Um, through colonial and racialized uh, exploitation of labor um, and such that the agents of imperialism were no longer um, merchant capitalists and aristocrats, but whole nations. Um, and that, that essentially the, um, the class struggle within Europe was uh, the, the difficulties presented by the class struggle were eased by colonial exploitation and, and, um, compromise was made possible um, basically by cutting the white working classes into the proceeds of the uh, uh, imperial spoils. And this, he thinks, um, compromised the development of democracy in Europe and in in, made it a sort of cramped form of democracy. It, it appeased the white working classes and, and uh, allowed them to settle for something less than true democracy, um, by cutting them into the imperial spoils, um, and uh, and in, and in that sense, um, not only was European democracy such as it was parasitic on colonial and racial exploitation, but it was also hampered in its in its further development. And and so it, it, it's important for understanding the color line in the sense that he he says essentially that racism and white supremacy comes to pay in the later part of the 19th century, pay nations you know, as, as a whole. And so the color line carves out um, the, the spaces in which certain kinds of exploitation are allowed to, to carry on, um, even as forms of, of international organization are coming to make other you know, forms of exploitation within the white community uh, less possible. 
So, so to me, this question raised notions of legitimacy within Du Bois about what is considered legitimate um, and, and how the, something that, that is unjust becomes legitimized. So how does that relate to what he's thinking about the United States' world role in the, in the 20s and the 30s in particular? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, so when um, in the context of, of the World War, uh, the First World War, He's he has a kind of criticism, say, of the language. Well, he he has two moves around Woodrow Wilson's like uh, language of making the world safe for democracy, right? So one is this this kind of argument that's trying to illuminate the kind of gap between principles and practices. Okay, you say you're trying to make the world safe for democracy. Well why don't you start at home, right? Uh, let's make America safe for democracy. Um, and so one that tries to use that gap between ideals and pra- practice or reality as a way of kind of, um, uh, you know, getting uh, getting a sort of response, um, response to the kind of African-American condition in the United States. And the, you know, and that's, I think you see that in the, um, in the letter to Woodrow Wilson, right? There's also in that an attempt to see the African-American condition as analogous to other national minority questions that might be taken up in the context of the League of Nations. So if America is going to be a kind of play a, a role on the international stage, then its problems are also going to be taken up on that international stage. And I think there is also um, a real, you know, um, um, interest in, or, or there's another kind of part of that, that which is about um, a real critique of the kind of hypocrisy of the United States claiming this role of world leadership, right? Um, and, and not just the United States, but the kind of hypocrisy of of the whole language of keep of the world making the world safe for democracy, right? The kind of you know, I, I think um, there's various versions of the of the essay of the culture of white folks. So I think it's in the one that's also in in the in the volume. But you know, okay there's all this kind of uproar about this, about Belgium and, and it's an invasion of Belgium. Well, what about the Congo and what Belgium has done to the Congo? Right. So I think, um, yeah. So I think this, this, the ways that Du Bois tries to use the United States professed ideals and commitments as a way of kind of internal critique of the United States is really important. Um, I mean, I think another thing, and you see this more in Black Reconstruction, is that Du Bois also then begins to, when he writes the story of Reconstruction, he makes visible the ways in which the failure of Reconstruction in the United States is linked up to and connected with uh, the rise of the new imperialism that culminates in World War One. So, you know, the year 1877 becomes really important to him it, because it marks the end of Reconstruction America, but it also marks, um, you know, Henry Stan- Stanley's uh, expedition to the Congo, right, and the kind of start of that that period of expansion. So, I, you know, I think the question of uh, yeah, it probably like there's more to say about American leadership in the post 45 period, like this, 
this period of the interwar, especially because the United States ends up not being in the League of Nations, um, you know, it's 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 not going to play the same kind of role that it does after 45. But I think you see the seeds of what will be his post-45 response in, in these kind of strategies with which he tries to engage Wilson in particular. Why don't we talk a little bit about, I really like what you did again in the introduction. Sorry, I'm saying that a lot. But um, Liberia, Japan, and the color line. Because I think that's a nice, clear illustration of sort of what you call the occlusions and the analytical, basically, purchase that the global color line provides to boys. So why don't we start with Liberia, and then if you could talk about that, and then Japan. His analysis of Liberia, because Liberia is an independent black state, um, his analysis of the ways in which European imperial domination, despite its formal independence, um, you know, persists throughout its history, um, is a really powerful analysis of that phenomenon and a kind of anticipation of the idea of neocolonialism. Um, so his, you know, his view is that imperial domination doesn't require formal political control, um, but that, that the, the, um, the control of, labor and through labor land can happen in any number of the imperial control of, of people's labor and, and, um, and their land can happen through any number of mechanisms. And in Liberia, um, the actual, uh, kind of formal sovereignty of Liberia serves to, to mask this phenomenon in certain ways, even facilitate it. So he traces the ways in which, you know, control of transport, monopolization of, markets, um, monopolization of, of onerous, uh, loans and, um, and the debt that's imp- imposed on Liberia, um, all of the ways that, that those are, um, used to render Liberia, um, essentially, a, um, an object of imperial domination. Um, the, what we say in the introduction is, um, that sort of analysis makes him less, um, inclined uh, to to see the ways in which domination within the Liberian population can play out. So the America-Liberian settler population and their relation to indigenous people in, in Liberia is not something that's that's kind of front and center in his analysis of Liberia, although it's true that, that in some later analysis in the 40s and 50s, he does claim that colonial elites are are a necessary piece of the of the way that capital operates to to dominate people in colonized situations so that's one place where the color line serves in a sense to to occlude his vision of certain kinds of dynamics in the case of the japanese empire as we've been saying you know about other agents the soviet union and the us in certain forms he looked to the japanese as as possible kind of countervailing counter hegemonic force that might resist white supremacy. Um, and that led him in the 30s to be much less critical of Japanese imperialism than than you might imagine, given other aspects of, of his analysis. And then he, he did later come to see Japanese imperialism as a phenomenon of capitalism and therefore became more critical of it. But there was a period in, in the 30s, um, and he visited Japanese-occupied Manchuria when he imagined that Japanese imperialism uh, in China might be uh, less oppressive um, or less participating in in the racism of of European imperialism um, than he later concluded it was. 
why don't we now move on to talking about this notion of the union of color? And and so also, I, I just want to add that even though it might sound like we're talking chronologically, a lot of these are overlapping and they're happening kind of at the same moment. So I just want people to be clear about that. But what is this notion of the union of color and, and, and Du Bois's imagination of what it could be or what it couldn't be? Yeah. Um, so the union of color is a phrase from an article in the 1930s. It's, it's, it's one of two that he publishes in an Indian um, uh, magazine called the Aryan path. Um, and he, um, so he, he thinks of this. So I think the color line um, so far, we've been talking about the color line as a kind of analytic um, you know, that helps them see the world in a particular way um, that, illuminates the ways in which race and racial hierarchy shapes the international order. And I think the other thing that the color line allows him to do is to envision an agent of transformation. And that's the union of color. So if the world is bifurcated by this global color line and, you know, the white world rules and the darker races are dominated the union of color is supposed to be constituted by the darker races, right? And in the in this particular set of essays, The Clash of Color and the Union of Color that are published in the 1930s, he's trying to make an argument for why it is, in this particular case, why it is that, um, uh, you know, African-Americans and, and Indians should... Um, you know, have closer ties with each other, should learn about each other's struggles, should collaborate where possible and, and, and be solid, solidaristic. Um, You know, I think, uh, and there's various ways, places he tries to stage out this. So I I would first, let me say, it's not like this idea, as you've already said, Danny, it's not like it occurs to him in the 1930s. So in some sense, he's been thinking about versions of this throughout. And, you know, even in that 1900 essay, when we were talking about the Spanish-American War, there's a way that he's thinking about kind of Puerto Ricans and Filipinos and African-Americans as as a kind of union of color within the United States, right? Um, but I think there are really important um, transformations in his thinking about this concept or, or idea. One is, I think, the kind of seeing the success and power of Gandhi's uh, civil disobedience um, after World War One uh, really helps him to imagine one a form of of action um, that could be um, in, taken up by the masses, right? That doesn't require a great deal of you know it doesn't require arms or a great deal of power, except except you know uh, you know discipline and and people and. That's a really inspiring moment for him. And it's also a moment in which the kind of vanguardism with which he associated African-Americans really begins to dissipate, right? So now he imagines that this union of color won't necessarily be one that's led by African-Americans, but would be one that in which, say, African-Americans might learn a great deal, right, from the example of um, uh, uh, civil disobedience in in. in in India. And, um, he, in the twenties, he, um, he, you know, represents this in this kind of really bizarre novel called, uh, Dark Princess, uh, and which kind of stages the, 
the union of color in, in, you know, fictional form, but also as a romance between an African-American and an Indian princess. Um, so I think, you know, in some ways, I think part of like the question is he has this idea of, of, of kind of forming a political and intellectual coordination between the darker races, right? The, where this, coordination would happen and what its targets might necessarily be are not that clear. Um, and I think that, that the, the sense that, okay, there's this agent, but we don't know, or there's this possibility of an agent, but we don't have the exact forum in which this union might be constituted and then leveraged, I think leads um, Du Bois to the kinds of, to the, to um, what Jennifer was saying about his reliance on or his search for co- already existing countervailing powers, right? So it's clear how some, like Japan, you know, an empire could combat or stand up against, say, the British Empire. You, it's 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 a possible imagination. But the, the union of color is a much more diffuse idea, right? Um, and that the struggle, there wouldn't be one kind of, one line of attack or something, but that it would be, you know, at least one way to think about it would be that it would be happening on multiple fronts, but that there would be some coordination or collaboration across, across those fronts. Derek, I know you had a question. Well, I'm curious to, to kind of follow up on the, this concept. Um, what, if anything, uh, did Du Bois make of the non-aligned movement, which of course comes out, comes around fairly, you know, toward the end of his life. Um, you, you know, he had an ideological affinity to the Soviets and, and the Soviet, the kind of communist world. But if you talk about a union of color, the non-aligned movement seems like it maps fairly closely to something like that. I mean, the founders include, Sukarno, Kwame Nkrumah, Nasser, uh, Nehru. I mean, this is sort of seems like it, it echoes at least what what he's talking about. And I'm sort of curious uh, what he made of it. So he wasn't able to attend the Bandung meeting, but he addressed it and it is, you know, supported the the phenomenon as a realization of something that he said he had been fighting for um, for decades. Adam, maybe you can pick up here and I'll keep thinking about what, what more to say. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I don't know if I, there isn't a lot of writing where he directly addresses uh, that I know of, at least the non-aligned movement. I think, you know, what Jennifer said about his general endorsement of Bandung, obviously he ends up settling in Ghana, Right. And, you know, the note we end with in the introduction, and this is partly inspired by Von Raspberry's work, um, who wrote this book, The Totalitarian Century, just thinks about African-American writers and how they thought about totalitarianism. And Du Bois is one of the figures. You know, one thing that's curious about, given the ways that Du Bois ends up in much closer affinity to the Soviet Union in in the period of the 1950s, is that Unlike other um, black Marxists, you know, um, who who because who have a more critical orientation to the Soviet Union, say someone like C.L.R. James or or Césaire, 
you know, they, they are already looking for a kind of alternative to the, to, to Soviet, to the Soviet Union, right? Um, and so they're thinking about whatever a third way, <laughs> I'm sorry to use that language here, but, um, as, as, as a kind, but he's, he's someone who's, or he, ha, he's ends up much closer to the Soviet Union. So I think, you know, I'm not sure. I don't think he had a kind of critical relationship or a crit- criticism of the non-aligned movement. Um, but I think he he was, you know, that wasn't sort of where his attention was near the end of his life. I mean, he was, you know, by this point in his in his 90s. Um, so, and and also he was in the midst of, you know a kind of struggle uh, with the United States over, over accusations that he was a foreign agent. Um, um, so I think there isn't as much writing about, you know, writing in this period. I think more generally, you know, um, as we said, the last piece is from 1956. Um, we have very little from the last eight years of his life more generally. Um, and, and in even um, yeah, like the last that last decade. Uh, so it it means we know less about what he thought about decolonization more generally, right? Um, and in some ways, I think that's kind of an interesting perspective because Du Bois takes us up to this moment where there's going to be a world kind of transformation, a geopolitical and like world transformation uh, of, you know, I think epic proportions, unprecedented proportions. Um, but he, 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 he's not, he doesn't walk us through that. And so it leaves us with a kind of, I think, a set of resources, analytic, theoretical, political, otherwise developed for a different kind of moment, right? A moment when, in which, empire took a particular form um, in which the intersection of race and the international took a particular form. And I think part of the question, and this is what Derek was getting to earlier, is like, even as that's the case, even as Du Bois doesn't walk us into the post-colonial period, there's so many ways in which his perspectives and orientations seem so resonant to the time, to the post-colonial and now post-Cold War context. And so I think that's what's really interesting about him, right? And to think about like, okay, he developed this context of concept of the union of color for a moment in which something like the non-aligned movement was unthinkable, right? But there's a way in which that basic premise, um, gets taken up in this particular form in, 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 in the post cold war period. And it's kind of interesting to think about in what ways that, you know, lives up to that ideal of the union of color and what the kind of different context of the post colonial post decolonizing and cold war moment makes possible and maybe, maybe limits about how that concept might be realized. So why don't we end on this question? Uh, the final section of the introduction is on Du Bois's approach to the American century. So what was his approach to the American century and how in the last years of his life did he react to the Cold War? And, and maybe we could get into the drama surrounding the revocation of his passport and his um, spending his final two years in Ghana. Yeah, I'm glad you asked. That was exactly where I was going to go at the end of what Adam was saying, just in the sense that the... It, you know, if you think of the non-aligned movement as one um, counter-hegemonic movement against the the kind of Cold War 
formation. Another was the the activities of the anti-nuclear movement that he was involved in that precisely led to his the revocation of his American passport. And as Adam alluded to earlier, his um, uh, you know, prosecution as a, as a foreign agent. Um, so, so in a way, those things are going on simultaneously when he was, uh, with the, the appeal that he wrote to the Bandung conference, um, he said, you know, we who are oppressed in America basically look to the leadership of you who, you know, don't forget us, um, as you, as you proceed in your, in your global leadership. Um, and that's a, a kind of interesting turning of, um, uh, or sort of further, um, proceeding along the path that Adam laid out earlier, where he had, you know, once positioned African Americans as kind of a vanguard, um, of darker peoples. And now he's, things have, have reversed and he's saying to the Bandung leadership, don't, don't forget us. Um, and by us, I think he means African Americans specifically, but also more generally political dissidents, um, in the U.S. Um, and members of the anti-nuclear movement, and as you say, his his disillusionment with the U.S. reaches such a point that when he when he is um, when his passport is restored, he leaves for good and moves to Ghana. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I would just add, you know, I think for him, this period of the post World War two moment um, is one as that as America is positioning itself for global leadership, it's also trying to shore up its domestic constituencies in various ways, um, both by marginalizing radical, marginalizing and suppressing radical critics or critics of, 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 of the Cold War like him and others. Um, and also by incorporating African-Americans into the nationalist project in various ways. And he's, you know, on the one hand, of course, he celebrates the moves towards um, what will become the civil rights movement um, and, and the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act, which, of course, he doesn't get to see himself. But, you know, he's anxious about the ways in which the um, demand to, uh, to kind of... Um, put America first, right, uh, to uh, get behind that, the nationalist project in this period is undermining the possibilities for the kind of dissent that Du Bois has cultivated his whole life. And this dissent, this position of being, as he puts it, a, a kind of simultaneously an insider outsider, right? Someone who is a kind of marginalized um, figure within the most powerful nation, right? And so having this, I think he thinks that's a really important positionality that African-Americans had mobilized in order to have a different kind of vantage point on the nation. And um, the space for that kind of... (laughs) position is being squeezed out, right? And he he saw it in various ways, of course, most significantly by losing his passport and and standing trial, but also, right, in the organization he helped to found, the NAACP, which he ends up being kicked kicked out of in this period, or pushed out of in this this period. Um, So I think, you know, I think this is, I think one of the, like, really important lessons of Du Bois is for those of us who are also find ourselves living in the United States is how to be a critic of empire from within the empire, right? What sort of 
perspectives, positions, um, solidarities does one need to foster and to constantly nurture in order to be able to have that clairvoyance that he himself tried, aspired to, um, not just in these late years of his life, but really throughout the time that he, he was a scholar and activist. So why don't we end on a simple question? Uh, would the boys have supported sending arms to Ukraine? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, like, oh man, <laughs> we've had we. It's interesting. We this is our second interview with <laughs> on the book, and someone asked not not that question in particular, but about Ukraine. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. There's there's absolutely no way to know that. There's 70 years of history, but I just wanted to to say, uh, Adam Gitachu. Even no, look. I mean, even though he's not with us anymore, you're either uh, not among us. You're either with us or against us. That, that's floor, true. So, you know, we take a hardcore Manichaean stance yeah. on this on this podcast. Uh, Adam Gitachu, Jennifer Pitts. Thank you so much for joining us everyone please check out wb du bois international thought it's a it's a fantastic contribution and for your academics out there i I strongly recommend assigning it to your um theory classes in particular so thank you guys for joining us we really appreciate it thanks so much for having us great to talk to you